welcome to the first episode of Nature Revisited, a podcast that will explore our relationship with the natural world. The focus of the podcast will be that nature is not a place one goes to, but rather a place one is a part of, that we are nature. My name is Stefan Van Norden, and I am a longtime gardener. A few years back, I stepped out of the garden to make the film Negotiating with Nature. This podcast is an extension of that film. It will consist of stories, interviews, and discussions that will highlight the notion that we are nature. It seems that there is a large gap between where we are and where we want to be. We find ourselves in a moment when our communities, our country, and our planet are in a state of flux. There is a lot of static and noise that surrounds us daily. Our world is changing rapidly, and often we find ourselves unsure as to where and what our place is in it. We face an uncertain future. The science that tells us we are harming the planet is not going away. The technology that seems to overwhelm us is not going away. And the planet that sustains us is not going away. I believe we are better served with the choices that lay ahead for us if we have a better and healthier relationship with the natural world, with nature. So where do we begin? Where do we start on this journey? I envision each episode of Nature Revisited to be a kind of planting of a seed. What better place to start than with someone who loved planting seeds, Thomas Jefferson. When I first started the filming of Negotiating with Nature, one of the first interviews I did was with Peter Hatch. Peter was the director of gardens and grounds at Monticello for 35 years. He was responsible for the restoration, interpretation, and maintenance of Jefferson's 2,400-acre landscape. He has lectured nationally and written a number of books about Monticello. He is the author of the wonderful book, A Rich Spot of Earth, Thomas Jefferson's Revolutionary Garden at Monticello. I interviewed Peter for over an hour at his Virginia home, where he talked about everything from Jefferson, Monticello, to gardening and nature. Here then is more of that wonderful interview. Okay, let's go. Right. Let's boogie here. <laughs> so, Peter, it's a beautiful spring day here in Virginia. Let's start by talking about the Jefferson. A lot of us might not really know. Thomas Jefferson wrote from Monticello one time, uh, how sublime to look down upon the workhouse of nature, clouds, thunder, lightning, all fabricated at our feet. 
And um, in so many ways, the landscape for Jefferson was a workhouse, and um, the gardens at Monticello became this sort of experimental laboratory, and Jefferson himself was the architect of this uh, unfolding of the natural world. And Monticello is also special because it's uh, kind of like the front range as you're going uh, east to west from Tidewater, Virginia, which was the civilized or the settled part of Virginia. And in some ways, you could look at uh, Monticello as this, uh, as this crossroads. Uh, you're looking east toward the old world, but you're also looking west to the new world. And I think uh, Jefferson, in so many ways, captured uh, the essence of uh, East European architecture and culture. Uh, but he also looked at the way of transplanting that to this brave new world. Even as a fairly young guy, um, when he was, I think, 23 years old, uh, he began his garden diary called The Garden Book. He commented upon the, the wildflowers that were blooming along the Rivanna River. He also documented uh, uh, sowing a, a garden at his boyhood home, Shadwell. Uh, his love of nature and his love of the natural world and his love of gardening began remarkably early in his life. Um, a lot of times it takes a certain amount of old age or maturity to develop those interests because our young lives are so animated and excitable and the peace of the natural world sometimes doesn't come through. But I think that, um, yeah, from a very young age, Jefferson was enamored with the natural world and his interest in gardening and horticulture really arose uh, in so many ways from this wide-eyed appreciation of nature. Not only was Jefferson uh, writing down in his garden book what was going on, but he also had a weather memorandum book where he recorded the daily minimum maximum temperatures. And he's been called the, the father of American weather observers for his dedication to meteorology. Another memorandum book included regular notations on the, the first appearance of a robin in the springtime or the first bloodroot that was blooming in March, uh, giving the dates for their coming and going of various natural phenomena. Jefferson once wrote that there's not a sprig of grass that shoots uninteresting to me. Again, it was this uh, wide-eyed appreciation, I think, of the natural world that engendered so much interest in landscape architecture and botany, and in some ways nature even set a foundation for his uh, writings about politics. Jefferson was a child of the Enlightenment. He believed that uh, observing and defining the, the natural world, cataloging and categorizing all the things that were going on, would result in human progress and ultimately into human happiness. One of the first things you marvel at at Thomas Jefferson was his almost obsessive record keeping. He was constantly measuring things, uh, mapping things, categorizing things, and in his writings about uh, contour plowing and uh, rotation of crops and um, progressive ideas for the time that he wrote about were very much celebrated and honored and talked about. And you don't hear too much about that in 2015. And of course, his, uh, his garden diary is legendary, uh, the garden book. And uh, in the garden book, one sees Jefferson as a, um, really kind of as a scientist, as a child of the Enlightenment, counting up how many Carolina beans which would fill a quart jar, which would in turn plant so many feet of row in his vegetable garden, organizing his entire thousand-foot-long vegetable garden into these three tidy categories, according to which part of the plant was being harvested whether fruits, roots, or leaves. Uh, a real uh, window into the mind of Thomas Jefferson. And uh, obviously, gardening was also an adventure for Jefferson. It was fun. Uh, he uh, 
planted uh, purple and white uh, eggplants and green, white, and purple sprouting broccolis in adjacent rows. And he edged his tomato square with okra plant textures in juxtaposition with each other. Uh, he reveled in odd-colored vegetables and multi-headed cabbages and other novelties of the vegetable world. And in the garden book, I think really one sees in Jefferson uh, one man's dance with the elements and a certain amount of playfulness when he was uh, in the garden sowing peas with his own hands or writing down in his diary when his salsify was harvested in October of 1814. And Jefferson himself um, uh, worked to some extent with his own hands. His participation in the gardening process was really kind of interesting. Uh, here we have uh, among the most cerebral of historical figures who actually was very handy. A woman who visited Monticello soon after Jefferson retired from the presidency, uh, her name was Margaret Bayard Smith. Uh, she described um, how there was a wooden seed rack that was carried from planting site to planting site in the vegetable garden. And on the seed rack were hundreds of glass vials and tin canisters of garden seed. And Jefferson would take the garden seed and sow it with his own hands, uh, according to Miss Smith. Five different times during his retirement years, he redid his vegetable garden. He relayed out what he called the squares or beds. And a number of these uh, measurements were recorded by Jefferson and are still around today. And often they were done in wintertime. And uh, one can see Jefferson. He was in his 70s. He was six foot two and a half. He was probably a little bit uh, weathered with arthritis, a little stooped maybe. And he had with him a theodolite, uh, which is like a transit that measures angles. And he also had a chain, which was like a tape measure that measured distances. And he was out in the garden, probably aided by a man sometimes called Monticello's head gardener. Uh, Wormley Hughes. And one can see Jefferson um, in the garden, uh, his boots muddied with Albemarle County red clay, moving the theodolite from one angle to another, one right angle to another, and then telling Wormley, well, pull the chain tight and mark a stick to mark the uh, corner of that bed over there. So it's another dimension to Jefferson that one doesn't necessarily associate with our third president, that he was good with his hands. Do you see Jefferson being relevant today? Well, um, I think a good, a good sort of epiphany was uh, when Jefferson was president of the United States, over the eight years of his presidency, uh, he kept a, a chart of the first and last appearance over an eight-year period of 37 different vegetables in the farmer's market in Washington, D.C., Jefferson went around to foreign embassies, and they would vie with each other to give Jefferson the most unusual type of vegetable. Jefferson get the seeds of these crops and then pass them out to local gardeners and farmers with directions on how to grow the things. So here was Jefferson, you know, over 200 years ago, uh, fostering local farmers. And today, of course, we have this really powerful movement, this farm-to-table movement. So he's, um, he's appealing, I think, to uh, young people because of the values that, um, that he believed in. Uh, he was primarily a vegetarian. That is, he uh, wrote one time that um, he ate meat only as a condiment to his meals. So I think he appeals uh, in some ways to uh, a lot of the, the, the younger generation. Gardening for Jefferson uh, was a social activity. Jefferson not only looked at plants as a vehicle for social change, but he also looked at plants as a way of relating to people, in some ways as a vehicle for social intercourse. And uh, there's this real union of gardening and, and sociability throughout Jefferson's gardening career. 
So gardening was a means by which the Jefferson family, I think, came a little bit closer together. It was a way for him to relate to his daughters and his granddaughters. He would often write to them from the presidency, um, asking them about gardening news at Monticello, what was blooming, uh, what birds were singing at a certain time of year, asking them why he hadn't heard from her about the, um, the blooming of the columbines at Monticello. How did you come to Monticello? But yeah, I arrived in, in, at Monticello in 1977 when uh, there was a growing interest in working on the landscape and restoring Jefferson's uh, landscape to its early 19th century condition. The outdoors of a historic house museum were as important in reflecting the, the character of the person who lived there as the interior artifacts, as much as the silverware or the tables in the house. And so Monticello was beginning to uh, become more sensitive to that, and um, part of the premise of uh, my arrival was that soon we'd begin working on recreating Thomas Jefferson's 1,000-foot-long uh, vegetable garden as well as the 403 South Orchard that rests below the garden. So the flower gardens, uh, the orchard, the vegetable garden, the grove were all key elements in my work beginning in Monticello in 1977. The job was interesting, not because I was necessarily walking in Jefferson's footsteps, but because I had this great variety of responsibilities that was really interesting. I'd write books about Thomas Jefferson, but I'd also um, come to work and figure out who gets which goddamn weed eater every morning. <laughs> My most memorable experiences at Monticello were really dealing with natural disasters. You know, blizzards. You know, I was in charge of snow removal, tornadoes, uh, hurricanes big droughts where we couldn't water things. The crises were the things that for some reason will linger in my, my mind as the sweetest memories of Monticello. My job was a tough, tough job, and it was a nuts and bolts. I was hired as sort of a nuts and bolts man, and you know I was hired to take care of 2,400 acres. It was a big job in that I had a lot of different uh, responsibilities. So I would tend to uh, have to put out fires all day long in some ways. And when I'd come to work, I'd often see uh, more problems that need to be remedied. It, it sounds like the most romantic job in the world, but in fact, it was a very nuts and bolts, uh, practical-oriented uh, responsibility. But, uh, you know, I was there for a long time, and uh, there were a lot of uh, moments of sublime sort of uh, experiences on the 2,400 acres that I took care of. How did working at Jefferson's home influence your personal thoughts and ideas about gardening and nature. I particularly, uh, you know, love the, uh, and identified with Jefferson through the natural world, uh, through the Rivanna River, which split his plantation, which has these gardens of spring ephemeral wildflowers or um, the forest at Monticello through which Jefferson's roundabouts would wind. So enjoying the, the natural beauty of Monticello, I think, was a way by which I identified a lot with Thomas Jefferson. But also, you know, meeting the challenges of gardening. Um, gardening is hard work. A lot of things go wrong. Um, nature can be a difficult relationship. So I identified a lot with um, Jefferson's own personal struggles with farming and with gardening. And I also, you know, identified a lot with the, the complexity of Jefferson, uh, his ideas on gardening, particularly on something like landscape design or landscape architecture, were uh, constantly evolving. And the Jefferson of 1778 uh, was really different from the Jefferson of uh, of 1806. 1806 was really different from the Jefferson of 1818. 
and his ideas on landscape really evolved dramatically over his lifetime. Let's talk about you a bit. How did you come to gardening? Yeah, I grew up in suburban Detroit when Detroit was sort of the center of the universe. Uh, I went to college, at, uh, was an English major in college, and after college I didn't have too many uh, ambitions. And It was the late 60s and I went to live with my college sweetheart who was living in Southern California. And um, I wrote bad poetry and drank tawny port in the afternoons and finally she dumped me for the fourth time, my college sweetheart, and so I had to go out and find a job. And so I, I wrote to um, schools around the country to be an English teacher because I was an English major in college. And I got one interview in a boarding school outside of Boston to be an English teacher and an ice hockey coach. So I got in my Volkswagen bug with my dog, uh, Tukum, and drove across the country and stopped to see my mother in suburban Detroit. And she made me go to her Lebanese hairdresser to shave off my beard and to cut my hair so I was presentable for this interview. And um, so I showed up for the interview with this goofy Prince Valiant haircut, and the headmaster said, why are you here? And I was a young kid. I was 22, 23 years old, and I just started um, babbling incoherently. While I was waiting around to find out that I didn't get a job as a high school hockey and English teacher, I was staying with a friend of mine from high school, and he started talking about the joys of organic gardening, of shoveling manure for a vegetable garden. So I found out I didn't get the job, and with no money and no girlfriend and no prospects, I decided to go back to where I'd gone to college in North Carolina and start an organic vegetable garden. So that's how I became a gardener. And, um, and I thought, well, I could garden in the daytime and write bad poetry at night. And so um, that's how it happened. Well, you know, I love to fall back upon Jefferson's more balanced belief that there is this nice relationship between nature and gardens. But day by day level, it often becomes a little bit of a, of a war, of a battle. And I, you know, I hate to admit that, but there's, there's no question about it. Nature is unruly. And gardening can be really a a non-natural thing. I mean, you're really trying to control the outside world, which is really difficult and maybe futile in a lot of ways. So I see nature as being pretty chaotic. I think one of my joys in terms of gardening is, is just the uh, sheer grunt labor of it. I love the labor, and I love to haul manure or uh, dig the garden or um, weed the garden. I love weeding. So I love menial, hard, physical labor that I'm not sure is is easy to communicate to young people the joys of, of uh, filling up a truckload of manure from the stables. <laughs> it's a little bit, could be a little bit of a hard sale unless you um, um, just enjoy being outside and the physicality of, of moving in, in the world around you. One of the reasons I said I was becoming a gardener is because you can measure um, the quality of your labor as opposed to being an English teacher, mm -hmm. where I had a lot of trouble measuring uh, my success and um, seeing kind of concrete results. But in gardening, it's all, it's all out there, and that's why you know, not all things are successful in gardening. It's uh, gardening, you know, Jefferson you know, regularly referred to particularly farming as gambling. And so you're, uh, you take a lot of chances, and um, the thing I love about gardening, one of the things is working with the weather is working with uh, what's going to happen in terms of a summer thunder shower or um, uh, cold weather approaching or uh, doing the things according to what the uh, meteorological conditions are. I love that relationship. 
so that's one place where I really enjoy working with nature, working with rain, working with drought, working with wind, working with the soil drying out, uh, working with the, uh, with the conditions. You know, I prefer to visit a, you know, a garden with a gardener who, uh, you know, a funky garden where everything goes wrong and uh, it's chaotic and uh, they use a lot of their kind of, they, you know, they, they, they grow the flowers in the middle of automobile tires and they use antennas to stake their peas. But I also, you know, have this training as a professional horticulturist that kind of defies that. Your goal is to have a safe, neat, uh, tidy, colorful, safe place. So that's an interesting, you know, interrelationship. And now that I, you know, my, my great joy in my life now is that I get to do my own gardening. I get to do my own work after being a little bit of a quasi-manager, particularly for the last 10 years of my career. Uh, but I get to do, do anything I want, and I don't ever want to have the pressures of being a show garden. Uh, everything's kind of personal to me. You know, this plant I got from so-and-so, this wildflower that I collected from so-and-so, so that's, that's kind of, this tree that I planted 40 years ago, look how big it is now. I find a lot of personal joy in just doing my own personal gardening uh, without the sort of prejudices and biases and stereotypes people have about what a garden should be. I think that uh, you know, gardening is an adventure. It's an opportunity to uh, express yourself. It's an opportunity to have fun and be playful. And I think Jefferson was playful. And I think that's an important ingredient to the, uh, to the gardening experience that isn't necessarily um, a universally regarded uh, point of view. Yeah, Jefferson once wrote, he wrote in 1813 uh, to Charles Wilson Peale, although an old man, I am but a young gardener. And his uh, gardening career was, and farming career were fraught with calamities. It almost reads like one disaster after another. Particularly in his vegetable garden, you know, he was he he just persisted. He was gardening well into his 80s. At the age of 82, he read about giant cucumbers in a Cleveland, Ohio newspaper, and he wrote the governor of Ohio and asked him for seeds of these massive cucumbers. And he got the seeds and passed them around to all his neighbors and friends and sowed them in his garden. Measured how long each one was writing that uh, although an old man I am but a young gardener, he was very much playing that role uh, in his uh, efforts to grow these giant cucumbers. And obviously he was having fun. If you enjoyed this interview and you would like to watch the film Negotiating with Nature, please follow us at nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. You can also follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And please share your thoughts, impressions, and ideas with us. This episode was produced by Charles Gagan, Annie Bond, and myself, Stefan Van Orden. I hope you will join us again for the next edition of Nature Revisited. Thank you.